Fusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. <laughs> the good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro-seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Strap yourself in as we blast off into the science stratosphere. I'm Patrick Ruby. On this edition, we'll have a symposium of delectable discoveries. Brains, brains, coffee, brains, and the future. First up, here's the week's best science news. Photographic memory in a pill? Ever wish you had a photographic memory? Spanish scientists claim to have singled out a protein that can extend the life of visual memory significantly. When the production of the protein was boosted in mice, the rodent's visual memory retention increased from about an hour to almost two months. This memory extension only applies to memories made through the poorly understood visual cortex of the brain. So, first the scientists removed from the mice the portion of the brain believed to be associated with visual memories, layer 6 of the V2 region, and showed that the mice could no longer remember any object they saw. They had correctly identified the site of visual memory. Then they increased the production of a group of proteins, RGS14, created in that cortex. The mice's retention of visual images was increased almost 1,500 times. Imagine the implications of an over-the-counter memory enhancer this powerful. You wouldn't have to study for tests the night before, you could do it months before, or even just attend the lectures. No need to ask for directions, just look at the map before your trip and every turn is committed to your powerful memory. Games of memory would be obsolete, life would change. Historical figures gifted with photographic memory include Amadeus Mozart, Nikolai Tesla and Desi Arnaz. Researchers have been sticking electricity into random brain locations again. When a neurosurgeon electrically jolted the parietal cortex in patients undergoing surgery, they felt a desire to wiggle their finger or roll their tongue or move a limb, give them a stronger electrical impulse, and they were convinced they'd actually performed these movements, although their bodies hadn't moved at all. Angela Sirigu, a neuroscientist, at the CNRS Cognitive Neuroscience Centre in Bron, France, who led the study, interprets the results to mean that there are specific brain regions that are involved in the consciousness of your movement. Her team, including neurosurgeon Carmine Motolese, performed the experiments on seven patients undergoing brain surgery to remove tumours. Because the patients were awake during the surgery, they could answer questions. Did you move, a researcher asked a 76-year-old man after zapping a part of his parietal cortex. No, but I had a desire to roll my tongue in my mouth. After a stronger pulse, a 42-year-old man exclaimed that his hand had moved, but they saw no signs of movement. His team also discovered that stimulating another brain area, the premotor cortex, provoked involuntary, unconscious movements in the same patients. The team's work points to two brain areas involved in the decision to move a limb and then execute the action. Sirigu speculates that the parietal cortex makes predictions about future movements and sends instructions to the premotor cortex, which returns the outcome of the movement to the parietal cortex. 
In day-to-day life, we rely on both brain regions to move about. You need both systems, both the parietal and the premotor cortex, to generate intention and check whether this is followed through. US researchers suggest that an increased caffeine intake can not only prevent Alzheimer's disease, but even reverse its effects. In mice, at least. Scientists in Europe have been investigating the benefits of caffeine in preventing Alzheimer's disease for some years, but the latest study from Florida's Alzheimer's Research Centre has taken it further. Lead researcher Dr Gary Arendash says caffeine was put in the water of mice that were genetically programmed to develop Alzheimer's disease. After they'd been giving the mice caffeine for two months, they found that the memory had actually returned and that there was a reversal of memory impairment. And quite remarkably, the Alzheimer's pathology in their brain was reduced by about 50%. Now, although mice and human brains are similar in key ways, the results cannot be assumed to be directly applicable to humans. The next step will be to administer caffeine over the course of a number of months to Alzheimer's patients to see whether or not the caffeine will have some beneficial effect to at least stabilise their cognitive function and hopefully improve their memories. The mice were given 1.5 milligrams of caffeine per day, but Dr Aaron Dash is recommending 500 milligrams for humans. Depending on how you brew your coffee, this could be up to five cups a day. He says, if I was in a family that had the inherited form of Alzheimer's, where half the individuals have it by age 60, I would definitely be taking in 500 milligrams of caffeine a day, and I'd be doing it in coffee. If anyone's wondering, the research has no sponsorship from coffee companies. Their funding came entirely from the State Institute of Health and the state of Florida. Urine-powered cars are possible now that scientists have found that it takes less power to electrolyze urine than it does clean water to produce hydrogen for fuel cells. As the most abundant element in the universe, car manufacturers have always fantasised about using hydrogen as a green fuel which performs really well. Conventional processes used to generate hydrogen from water and transporting it aren't as environmentally friendly as the fuel itself is. So researchers at the Ohio University are solving the riddle by generating hydrogen from a cheap and readily available waste, urine. The researchers believe that electrolyzing urine for hydrogen is easy compared to generating it from water, because in urine, hydrogen molecules aren't as tightly held together as they are in water. The system breaks down urea at a voltage of just 0.37 volts, which is significantly less than the 1.23 volts required to split water. The research was initially conducted on synthetic urine made of dissolved urea, but later the group realised that the process was just as efficient when tried on human urine. The researchers believe that technology can be scaled up to generate hydrogen while cleaning up the effluent from sewage plants. The only downside is that urea gets converted into ammonia by bacteria very quickly, which could limit the usefulness of the technique. Ammonia is useful in making fertiliser, but also risks becoming explosive. Since it takes 0.37 volts to cause electrolysis in urea, and a hydrogen fuel cell produces 0.8 volts under load, that means you could run two of these urea electrolysis cells in series off just one hydrogen fuel cell. This would produce twice as much hydrogen as you are putting in to produce it. Urine-powered cars could produce a whole new meaning to taking the piss. Thank you, Ian. I have, I have to admit, it wasn't the future that I envisaged for the world of renewable energy resources. I, I was also interested about the, um, the stories that you had there on the brain, particularly 
caffeine. From what I know of caffeine, uh, caffeine works at a receptor called an adenosine receptor. Uh, Adenosine is a neurotransmitter that works in your brain and is related to your wakefulness. So you get a buildup of adenosine at night um, and that's the time when you typically go to sleep because you're feeling tired. So it's acting at this receptor and it creates tiredness, a sort of general inhibition of your nervous system. And if caffeine's inhibiting this, then you're more alert, you're more awake, you're less tired. The system involved with memory and alertness, secondary alertness, um, is a system that goes usually by... There's a whole number of different neurotransmitters involved, but this particular one for memory, the ones that's affected by Alzheimer's disease, use another neurotransmitter called acetylcholine in an area of the brain called the hippocampus. Um, And I am curious as to how the two are related, how uh, the adenosine pathway and the acetylcholine pathway connect, or perhaps there's there's another mechanism somewhere in there that we don't yet know about. Well, there are people who take the smart drinks or the smart food with extra choline. Mm. So does that choline that you get in your food, is that going to end up as a choline neurotransmitter that helps your memory? It all depends on whether it survives going through your stomach, really, and if it can actually get into your blood and then if it can pass into your blood-brain barrier because any, any xenobiotic, any drug that you take, has got to get through your gastrointestinal system first, which usually destroys things that it doesn't recognize it's good at destroying bacteria and a lot of drugs that you take orally such as dopamine if you've got parkinson's disease well you don't actually take dopamine because of that you have to take something called l-dopa which is a precursor because dopamine itself would get digested in your gut well they've thought of this so what they're the, the two forms that they offer it one is choline bitartrate which is just choline which I guess they expect your body will use to make choline. Um, the other thing is lecithin. Lecithin is used by your body to make choline as well. Mm-hmm. So you have heaps of lecithin, which is just a food, so your body just digests it. But whether it helps your memory, I don't know. Mm-hmm. Be interesting to find out. And other news, the visual system, visual memory, and the most of your cortex, with the exception of some of the older areas, most of your cortex is put into six layers, and these layers have all got fairly distinct functions. Um, and the sixth layer is usually involved in communicating between your cortex, which is the highest center of your brain, and your thalamus, which is like a relay station right in the middle of your brain, which is dealing with um, with sending messages around, sending messages up to the higher centres of your brain to the cortex and sending messages around relaying them to other centres of the brain. Um, so your V2 area is a visual association cortex. So this is an area which it doesn't actually receive inputs from your eyes and process them directly. That's the V1 area um, that's, resu- that's involved in discriminating what you see. This is an area involved um, mainly with attaching meaning to things that you see. And it seems that this area now, this this layer which interacts with the thalamus, is involved in visual memory processing. Hmm, that makes sense. 
I wonder if they can also find a site for you know auditory memory processing because then as well as getting photographic memory at least for until your next dose a few months later mm. um, you could remember everything you heard as well mm. well if you could remember everything you heard what would be your favorite thing to remember <laughs> well you wouldn't need an iPod would you no no you'd have all your favorite songs in your head straight away and you'd have every conversation you'd ever heard exactly right people couldn't say well actually what I said when that's not what mm. they said at all very very handy especially for a science program producer <laughs> okay good thanks for the news Ian you're listening to Diffusion Science Radio diffusion at 2SER.com brought to you across Australia on the community radio network next up we have Ian again Ian is travelling into the future with Janine Kale the organiser of Fish at Six from Future Journeys. I'm in a coffee shop in Sydney talking to futurist Janine Carl about how we're living in the age where the impossible is becoming possible. And there's a few different variations I have on that. And one of them, uh, one of them I'd like to reflect on today is the work by Sagata Mitra in India, who's actually designed a series of what he calls a hole-in-the-wall experiments. Where he was working was actually in Mumbai and there was a wall between his office and a slum. So he started his first hole-in-the-wall experiments by building a hole, putting in a computer, um, having it open on the other side with a screen and a um, some kind of mouse. And uh, he connected it to the internet and then also had a camera where he watched what happened. And basically, young people just started to use it. So children started to use it. They showed each other how to use it. And within a very short time period, there was a whole bunch of kids who actually knew how to use the internet and were surfing. So that motivated him to actually roll it out in some kind of way in a, a stronger research project. And some of the findings that he's had, he, he put it in a number of uh, very remote communities and his major finding for him was that computer technology makes the biggest difference in the most remote areas, the most disadvantaged communities because suddenly they're getting access to education which they didn't have previously. So if you, a, lot, a lot of the normal thinking is around, well actually we'll put it in a school that already understands a little bit about uh, communications technology and we'll see what happens when in fact the opposite is true. Put it where it's really needed. It's an amazing story. So if you want to have a look on www.ted.com under Sagatra Metri, you can get the full story. But it really is the era of where the impossible becomes possible. So you're saying there's all these things that we used to think were impossible that, in fact, a lot of people still say are impossible, for example. You can't just stick a computer in front of people and expect them to know how to use it. Exactly. You need to train them. But yeah. it's impossible for them to just work it out themselves. These children taught each other English. They couldn't, the, the pronunciation was all wrong, but somehow they worked in, in uh, English words like file, save, um, you know, all, all the ones that we use on computers. And then they actually used them in their everyday language when they're talking to each other around other things. So they totally knew the context. So they, they were all self-taught. What sort of age do the kids seem to be? From 6 to 12. Wow. 
Yeah, mm. and interestingly, sometimes uh, the younger kids are the most creative. I read a book recently called Thumbs, Toes and Tears, uh, which is a, a look at how humans developed. And one of the interesting stories is um, where they there was a, um, I'm pretty sure it's Argentina, they were, uh, uh, the new president had decided that um, he wanted to do something for deaf children, so he brought them all into a central place and uh, decided to teach them all sign language so to improve their lives. Um, what Unfortunately, they chose to use the Russian system, which is, is an alphabetical system based on the Russian language. And so, of course, that, that didn't really work. So it caused a lot of frustration. But what the students, the young people did is they created, the children actually created a new language, uh, a new sign language. And uh, from there, what they found, it was very, um, you know, a noun, maybe a verb, another noun, very simple, um, not structured. But they actually found that a, 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 a little six-year-old girl actually started to develop um, grammar, so a way to structure the sentences. And then the other children all, you know, slowly followed as the idea came out. And that's how they developed Argentinian sign language. And if I'm wrong on the Argentinian, please let me know. <laughs> I'll have to go back to my book. Um, but it is, the, the impossible is possible. We can teach ourselves things. We have this incredible brain. And, and it's time that we, that we start to use it. I think you're so right. It's one of those things. I don't think we've got anywhere near the limits of what we can teach ourselves to do. That we're, we're not training people in all sorts of things that... Well, we're not training children in logic. We're not training them in, in how to, all different ways to think. Absolutely. Uh, at school, we're not we're not teaching them all this basic stuff. We're not teaching them control of their bodies outside of sport. There's all sorts of simple techniques we could teach them that would make their lives easier. Absolutely. Yeah. There tends to be an overfocus on on content rather than skills and capacities and frameworks that they can use and adopt in different situations. That's far more important in this time of accelerating change than content which is out of date before you know it. I think that you know um, we're preparing students now for jobs that don't exist. And by the time they finish their degree, the job that they may have had in their mind may not exist anymore. It is a time of accelerating changes, whole new areas of work opening up and uh, yeah we need to prepare people for that so this is the thing we've got our education system very narrowly focused on making you ready for these jobs that as you say probably won't exist in the three to four years it takes you to do your degree so what would be better to follow their passion so you know there's some of the university programs possibly the area of design the area of design where they actually allow them to choose their own projects and then they're required to go and do the um the literature search and the, the theoretical searches as well and, and why things are the way they are but they actually get to choose their own project now that has to be an ideal I have a friend from the Open University who accredits programs throughout the world and she said one of the best one is in the Netherlands they come in and you know they decide a, an area of work they're facilitated through a three or four year degree and at the end of it they actually have a product, a service, a business, something that is actually uh, prepared to enter um, this incredibly changing world. So it's like doing a thesis. 
Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it's self, self-regulated mm. and self, um, self-defined. It's a, a wonderful um, encouragement of innovation because you can, from there, you know, um, you, you've actually created something that has value in the world immediately. They encourage a lot of collaboration within the university as well, so that you know there's a lot of collaborative projects happen. So you get um, enough people excited about ideas, so something new can really arise. So do you think there's some limiting beliefs that have made a lot of things impossible that are starting to lift now? Absolutely. Um, there's a <laughs> sounds like all my references are TED.com, but there is one. <laughs> there's another fabulous video there. Another fabulous presentation. Um, by Kevin Kelly, who's a very long, long uh, viewed futurist. Um, he has an organisation called the Ten Thousand Year Foundation, and so on. So, but he, he looks at the first five thousand days of the web, and you know, as it, as it actually describes each element, you know, it's it's a proof that the impossible is possible. You know, we have all this information, we have an incredible amount of information at our fingertips, and it's all for free. What does this mean? I mean, you know, if you had gone, as he said, if you went to a, um, you know, a business analyst or whatever a few years before and said, I have this great idea and it's all going to come for free, there's no way. You know, none of this makes sense in the knowledge that was known at the time. It just develops. You know, Wikipedia is a great example of that. Who would expect that? Who would expect um, Firefox? It's coded by its customers. So, you know, 60% of the coding is done by, by um, you know, their community, the people who use it. I mean, this is, this is the impossible is possible now. And it's a bit like, you know, the future is created and a lot of people take their insights from, you know, very um, intelligent science fiction writers, you know, who actually have done a lot of research and they, they put forward a scenario about what the future might be like following a particular line, um, obviously being science fiction, it has to be dramatic enough and have all those elements, but what they do is make, they encourage scientists and engineers to create some of the things that they talk about. The whole opportunity that's created by crowdsourcing and by uh, social media, um, I don't think it can be over-exaggerated the huge impact that has on bringing together people who are trying to make a difference in the world, whether they're um, scientists and engineers, but you know, ones who are passionate about the earth and humanity and are actually working to make the world a better place, um, have a very broad view and understanding of what that might mean. Um, but it's bringing together, the social media is bringing together huge numbers of organisations. Um, I work with some youth organisations and with some youth peace organisations and several youth peace initiatives are starting to, to come together and work together and collaborate because they, they know they exist because they know because of social media and, and uh, the capabilities of the internet. That's one example. In the sustainable space it's huge. Um, you know, there, there's great, great vast numbers of people who are involved and who run large networks of people who are also passionate. So it's, I think, you know, the whole opportunity to bring these kinds of people together, these networks of networks together and actually share information, um, you know, it creates a huge open innovation platform, which 
which en enables the acceleration of, of innovation and change. So you think we're in for an explosion of change in the near future? Because things seem to be a little bit slow at the moment. Yeah, I think, I think there will be an explosion of change, but I think people are becoming more aware that we as humans, our brains are not changing rapidly enough. So we're actually, you know, the last ma major change in our brain was 400,000 years ago. So um, it doesn't mean that our brains are not going to change in the near future. But we could, um, there's a whole range of techniques being developed to actually assist us to cope with um, huge amounts of information. You know, we have the, the um, acceleration of artificial intelligence at the same time as people are being overwhelmed by their emails and their Twitters and all of, all the, all of that. So, you can, so with, you can actually have an intelligent agent that would help you sort information, for example. So that's a, a great enabling technology. And there's a lot of research in brain science, which is huge and have a huge impact because it's basically saying we understand what it is to be human. So knowing that, how do we design environments for ourselves that enable us to be, you know, to fulfill our potential. Janine Carl, thank you very much. Thanks very much, Ian. That was Ian Wolfe getting cosy in a cafe with Janine Kale. You can find out more on Future Journeys at www.futurejourneys.com or you could follow Janine on Twitter, J9J. And that's all from us in this edition of Diffusion. If you'd like to contact us, if you have feedback, comments, suggestions, praise for the wonderful work that we do on Diffusion, or if you'd like to contribute to Diffusion and hear your own voice communicating science on radio, then send us an email on diffusion at 2ser.com. That's diffusion at 2ser.com. Or subscribe to our podcast on our website, www diffusionradio.com that's www.diffusionradio.com contributing this week was ian wolf diffusion has been produced by ian wolf in the studios of 2SER sydney and is broadcast nationally via the community radio network i'm patrick ruby join us inside your audio device of choice next week for more science wondering on diffusion science radio next up you're no one if you're not on Twitter by JB Walker. You're no one if you're not on Twitter. And if you aren't there already, you've missed it. If you haven't been bookmarked, retweeted, and blocked, you might as well not have existed. You might as well not have existed. In the old days it was all about achievements Collecting all your trophies in a shrine In a shrine, ah. But everybody came across the internet Internet And suddenly you had to be online A homepage was all you really needed To seem like a success but not a geek Not a geek, ah. As long as you updated semi-annually Annually And checked your email once or twice a week but now you're no one if you're not on Twitter And if you aren't there already, you've missed it 
If you haven't been bookmarked, retweeted, and blogged, you might as well not have existed. You might as well not have existed. Technology was moving rather quickly. The next thing you needed was a blog. Was a blog. Ah. With intimate and detailed press releases. Releases. Now and then a photo of your dog. More recently, the students brought us Facebook. And everybody has a hundred friends. Hundred friends. Ah. Bodies in the photos look amazing. Amazing. They're not so great that everyone pretends. Cause now you're no one if you're not on Twitter. And if you aren't there already, you've missed it. If you haven't been bookmarked, retweeted, and blogged, you might as well not have existed. You might as well not have existed. Now you need to publish every movement. And every single thought to cross your mind. Cross your mind. Ah. Told the Twitterverse is full of rubbish. Rubbish. But most of us are really quite refined. We validate each other's insecurities. Hey. And brag about the gadgets that we've bought. That we've bought. Ah. We laugh out loud at every hint of jolliness. Jolliness. And try to self-promote without being caught. Cause now you're no one if you're not on Twitter And if you aren't there already, you've missed it If you haven't been bookmarked, retweeted and blocked You might as well not have existed Oh yes, you might as well not have existed